When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everybody. On this uh, 18th of October, 2021, my name is Luke Thomas, and it's time for MK Extra Credit. This is where we get to the fights that we didn't have time for on regular MK Morning Combat, which comes out Monday, Wednesday, Friday, live, 11 a.m. in the East. This is our little mini podcast where we get to all the extra stuff. So for today, Bellator 268 we'll talk about, as well as UFC Fight Night, Lad versus Dumas, UFC Fight Night, 195, Vegas 40, whatever they're calling it these days. Um, all right, so first things first. Thumbs up on the video. Subscribe to the channel. We do MK Regular. We do MK Extra Credit. We do interviews. We do on the scene uh, you know, coverage, all kinds of stuff. MK One Stop Shop. All right, uh, but this will be just be me for today. Now, I'm going to do things a little bit differently, folks. I'm going to try something. If you like it, leave a comment. If you don't like it, leave a comment. Normally what I like to do is just go through all of the leftover fights from any major promoter, but it's usually only been about UFC the last few weeks. Here we have a bit of a crossover and I just, with Bellator and UFC, I don't want to just run through 20 fights and not really give you a whole lot of detail either for this weekend. I don't think there would be 20, but in principle in the future, I don't want to do that either. So I'm going to try something today. I'm going to pick an additional five fights to focus in on from the weekend. If you like this format, let me know. If you like part of this format, let me know. If you like none of this format, let me know. I want to make sure that we hit this podcast really gives you what you're looking for for MMA content that we can't get to on regular MK. All right. So with that in mind, let's start. I'm going to pick three fights from the UFC card. Again, UFC Fight Night 195, UFC Vegas 40, UFC on ESPN plus 53, whatever name you want to give it. This was at the Apex and it was on Saturday the 16th. We did talk about Norma Dumont versus Aspen Ladd. We mentioned a little bit about Arlovsky versus uh, Carlos Felipe. Of course, Arlovsky winning that fight 29-28 across the board. You know, we said a lot about how, mar you know, uh, not just marvelous, I suppose, is one word you could use, but just sort of how impressive it is that Arlovsky has really done this into the second stage of his career. But now that I'm going back and I'm watching, and not that it's not impressive, it's extremely impressive, but like, why is it happening? And I mentioned basically what he's doing for these fighters is he's slowing the fight down and he's making it much more of a fight IQ and skills-based test for them. If you notice what Arlovsky did in this fight, a lot of times, he would stand southpaw. He would invite the pressure of Carlos Felipe. Then he would throw over the top, either with a left or he would uh, stance switch into right-handed stance. From the right-handed stance, he was a little bit more in the pocket, maybe sitting behind the jab there. But what he was really doing was not so much about the stance, although that's part of it. What he was doing a lot was the fainting, the lateral movement, the not giving you a consistent look. And the reason why that slows the fight down, quite literally, is that Carlos Felipe or whoever is against him they're having trouble knowing when to go. They're far enough apart where they know they have to dart in. And if they just dart in, they're either going to get countered or widely missed. They don't want to do either of those. So they take their time to take their time, excuse me, to try to set it up. 
But the problem is they're not used to that kind of time. They're not used to that kind of motion slowing them down where it's a feint. He's off at an angle. It's another feint. He might throw a little bit. He might act like he's throwing. He'll switch stance instead. He's Again, he's lateral moving the whole time. So what Arlovsky is doing is basically eating up the shot clock over and over again to the point where by the time they go, it's often ill time. There's not a whole lot behind it. They don't have the skills necessary to disrupt all of the spamming, so to speak, that Arlovsky is doing. He's filling that time with his movement. He's filling that time with his feints. And as a consequence, these guys just can't get going. He can get going. He disrupts them. And it looks quite amazing. It's it's. It's a much smarter approach. Even when he gets hit, he doesn't get hit very hard. Um, he can do this because he's kind of gifted at it for a while. He does obviously look, you know, he's 42 years old. This is only natural. He does look a lot slower than he used to. Um, but at the same time, it, it, that style where you're filling up the space with your hand feints, your stance switches, your uh, your fakes, your level changes, whatever, and then your lateral moving and changing the angle and not giving them a consistent target, and then you're just eating up the clock in the process. Folks, I got to tell you, that's, that's I don't know if I'm going to say the style of the future, but I think that's a big part of the style of the future. And that won't always work against someone who's got equal levels of athleticism and or you know similar kind of skill sets, but it will work a lot if there's a big gap in skill set. I mean, the UFC has such a blessing in Arlovsky, not merely because he is so good at this kind of game this late in his career, this is amazing story. But then beyond that, you know, what it kind of shows as a weeding out process, not just who's good, who's bad, but that particular test. I'm going to make you fight on terms you've just not fought on before, you're going to have to think through these problems and I'm going to throw so much stimuli at you, either with level changes, angle changes, stance switches, motion in general, hand feints, shoulder feints, hip feints, all working in combination. I'm going to eat up the clock so that by the time you go, I can see it all coming and then make some kind of reaction from it. It's, it's extremely impressive. It's what you see a lot of high level fighters and champions doing. Olofsky's doing it at a bit of a different level, given his age and the relative, uh, um, uh, you know, kind of competition he's facing. But it's a similar kind of thing uh, in principle. I said I was. I might give you six. I could do a lot of these fights. Second fight I want to get into is the Jim Miller versus Eric Gonzalez fight. He wins 14 seconds into the second round via KO. That left hand was landing over and over again. You heard Michael Bisping mention it in the second round. He comes back out and he gets it again. Gonzalez comes in, uh, I think, with like a double switch knee or some kind of uh, technique where he left his feet and then came down. His hands were by his waist. But more than that, he just wasn't moving off the center line at all when he was boxing, at least not a whole lot. Um, and so that's why the left kept kept working. I think it was also Southpaw versus Orthodox, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, if you line up the, the left hand over and over again and he doesn't move his head, then it's going to be there. Uh, and then you saw that. He did get rocked, Jim Miller, but he fought his way through it. Remember, I think he wrestled, if memory serves, at Virginia Tech, you know, D1 program, not like the most elite D1 program, but a pretty respectable one. And uh, so you saw a little bit of that there. He, uh, he got hurt a little bit. Um, even got, I think... Uh, he worked from guard for a little bit, I think, after getting taken down, but was able to get up without too much incident. So it was overall a well-rounded uh, uh, kind of 
performance from Miller and his result is in some ways more impressive than Arlovsky's. Not that they're in competition per se, but we're talking about two of the older guys on here. But I would actually argue what Arlovsky is doing as a body of work is more impressive, even if a KO is always going to get, or in many cases, going to be viewed more highly as a authoritative. Um, it's a more authoritative finish by definition, but a more representative representative of a more authoritative performance. In that case, I think what Arlovsky is doing is a little bit different. Miller has obviously improved on what he used to be. But Arlovsky has figured out what the very best are doing. He's taken a version of that, made it good for himself, and has applied it at a very specific level of the game. Miller, I think, is just showing you that if you're constantly in the gym and you always have a, a you know, a, a distilled down to its most basic version, does he have a strong skill set? He does. And I think uh, that's what you saw there, just sort of so many bases covered even when one thing goes wrong and one thing doesn't work all that well, there'll be something else that can kind of bring up the rear, so to speak. Um, I was only going to do three on this card. I'll do four here. I'll do six fights today. I want to get to the rest of this main card from UFC. Manon Fioro taking on um, Myra Bueno Silva, 30-26 and then two 30-27s. Now, this was an interesting one. Fior or Fioro, however you pronounce her last name. Again, she's French. I, I don't know how to do it. Um, She's an interesting fighter because she has a ton of skill on the feet. And uh, I was hyping her up on regular MK. This fight to me, I don't, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what to make of it. Bueno Silva had a problem in this contest, namely her defense, which was one, she was kind of walking in a linear path. She wasn't do, doing a whole lot of setting angles. She was getting beaten to the punch, you know, metaphorically and... Um, figure uh, literally and more to the point it was this when the punches were beginning to be thrown and you would see these blitzes from Fioro the hands of Bueno Silva would come up if you're listening on the audio podcast just imagine you're looking at your palms or your palms are kind of touching the top of your head and your elbows are up together and on the inside you've seen this position a million times that was what she kept going back to that was the wrong answer for someone like Fioro why? Because what Fioro could do is simply throw a punch at Bueno Silva's face, and the defense is going to be the same every time. The hands are going to come up. But when the hands come up, one, it can kind of impair your own vision, and two, she's kind of locked into that. It's probably true that you can bring your hands up and you can rock your head and your waist together, but that's not really... That's not really what the purpose of that is. The purpose of that is just to be able to block and now your hands are up there and you can quickly retaliate um, based on the hand position. What I'm trying to point out is if she was able to slip punches or lean out of the way of them or roll under them or whatever, where she could more nimbly move around the punching lanes of Fioro, that would have been a completely different fight. Not saying that uh, Buena Silva would have won, but if your hands are just going to go up every time that your opponent throws them at your face, they're going to take that and use it against you. So what would they do is they would just throw some kind of decoy shots. The hands would come up and then she would throw hooking punches around the side because that's the other problem. You can do this for a little bit, but if you bring your hands up, there's going to be a window around the outsides of it that a hooking punch can get into, especially in MMA where the gloves are small. 
So she just kept doing this and then angling off for basically three rounds. She also took her off of her feet with some front kicks. And I think the side kick was the one that was kind of interesting. Um, I don't know how painful they were, but they were good at, you know, making her back up, come back into range on essentially Fiora's terms. So Buena Silva would get pushed back with the, you know, the side kick. She tries to walk back into range. And as a consequence, by that point, Fioro has already timed her and blitzed her. Here come the hands again, pop, 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 up to the top. The Buena Silva brings the hands right back to the same position. Now you can go down to the body if you want to. Now you can go back to the hooking punches. You can do switching stance hooking punches from the other side. And you can use that, by the way, when they bring their hands up. You can also pull their hands down on a hand trap. I've seen fighters use it to go hook to the head, uh, then the straight punch to the body, and then use that moment to then turn and then reset the angle, I think. Fiora, Fioro did that a couple of times, if I'm not mistaken. Like, it just creates so many things for your opponent to do against you. And it seemed to be, at least in this fight, the only defense that the Brazilian had. And that it made this fight basically unwinnable. The thing that was kind of interesting to me about Fioro is that she even got a little one note with it. And it was funny. It's like, dude, on the one hand, she did exactly what she was supposed to. And she did it very successfully. Like, when that fight was over... There wasn't a lot of doubt about who won it. At the same time, if you have your opponent that caught in a defensive trap, you would have thought that the punches would have accumulated some more. Although, you know, Bueno Silva's face was messed up. You would have also thought that maybe you could have opened up into some other forms of offense. Like, that's the only offense you have is what we showed here. It just, it, it got the job done by a million miles it was a great performance don't misunderstand me but you would just wonder like wow did you really have her number maybe step on it a little bit and i didn't quite see that i'll make a quick mention of nate landwehr beating ludovic klein with an anaconda choke at 222 at the third round what an interesting fight klein looked like he was chiseled out of stone that guy looked to be in incredible shape and landwehr just gave him the business uh, i thought dean thomas who i guess has at this point replaced um um the coach Trevor Whitman as the kind of ringside expert let's sort of go to what he says kind of role I think Dean's been a breath of fresh air in there particularly in this fight because he noticed it too Klein liked this kind of fight at distance where it's more or less a similar kind of test to what Arlovsky is putting to these up-and-coming heavyweights you can think through this problem at distance through angle change through feints through fakes through timing um, you can win, but if you can't, I like this sort of slower battle on the outside. Whereas a guy like Landwehr just get in your face, make it ugly, and and make it work. But dude, the fight's a little more complicated than that. Even that's that's true, right? Just sort of getting in Klein's face and not really. Basically, what Landwehr did on the feet was I'm just not going to accept that there's a ton of risk here. I'm going to plow through it, and almost Klein almost needs his opponents with that style to be so fearful of breaking the rules of engagement that they would never do it so then they stay on the outside but then they lose a fight by getting picked apart right oh you can't just blitz me because if you did even worse things would happen but then Landwehr called the bluff and it turned out there wasn't worse things that happened to him in fact it all benefited him but the real story is actually Landwehr getting Klein up against the fence and sometimes Klein would go to like clinch or for takedowns and Landwehr would then reverse the position and push him into the fence and he could do that because one in those positions he would get the underhook and he would drive it but then Klein was constantly pushing Landwehr back so once they made contact all he had to do as the stronger man was turn him and he did and they pushed him into the fence and did he was tearing him up with knees in the clinch he was bodying him he was getting him from snap downs that's how I was actually able he was able to get the two anacondas he attempted one the previous round the other one he got 
when he attempted in the third. And you heard Bisping talk about where that choke needed to be. A lot of times you'll see guys drive through with a really deep hook with their hand for the anaconda. But it turns out getting it slightly shallower is actually better versus all the way through. I'm trying to demonstrate with my hands. It's a little bit difficult. But it turns out you can go a little bit shallower, a little bit narrower on the inside where the lock is kind of almost covering their face or a big part of it. That's what he was talking about because it was too far up on the side versus not right in front. And it's when in front where it's, again, it's a shallower grip, technically speaking, but that shallowness actually makes it, a, instead of being all the way over, it actually comes on the inside. And now it's nice and tight. That's what he was talking about. Anyway, um, so the second time he got it, although if you look at his toes, if you look at Landwehr's toes, Nate, I saw you, he had all of his toes in the fence using it to push into the choke itself not supposed to be able to do that again you can put your feet on the fence your toes aren't supposed to grip on the inside that's the issue but neither here nor there i think it was landwehr should have won that one via decision even if it didn't get submitted uh even if uh, klein didn't get submitted there and i was just extremely impressed even on the outside klein was doing a lot of pressing but Klein has something like Arlovsky style, which again is sort of this particular style he's imploring, which is a little bit similar to what like Volkanovsky does. It's a little bit similar even to what Gon does. Again, they're all very different in their own ways, but there are common bonds between them about eating up the clock, confusing opponents, getting them to slow. Again, what does Volkanovsky do? He doesn't just land a lot. He lowers the output of his opponents. So you see some kinds of things with Arlovsky where he doesn't just beat them, but these guys are taking lots of time and around to get going because they can't figure out what, what, what to do. Anyway, um, Klein tries something similar, but he doesn't have the nimbleness of the footwork, either as the attacker or the uh, uh, retreater. He was just a little bit flat-footed with it. In fact, if you look who's bouncing, especially in the first and second rounds, it's actually Landwehr who's doing a lot more of the movement, which you would expect on the outside. But for the style that he had, for the things he was trying to do, I think Klein obviously looks like he's a great athlete, but I think in the footwork working with the striking style he's trying to impose, there needs to be a little bit more harmony there. Um, there's a lot more of these fights I could have gotten into with Bruno Silva having an incredible comeback win against Andrew Sanchez, Danny Roberts getting a nice win, Dana Botgarel getting the really nice win, uh, Ariana Carme, Carnalosi, uh, getting the rear naked choke. There's a, there's a few of these you could have gotten into, but those are the ones that were most impressive to me, which brings me, of course, back to the um, Bellator card. I'll go If I have more time at the end, I'll go back, but I want to get to this Bellator card because there were some fights on the main card worth talking about. We don't do a lot of Bellator coverage here, but I thought it was kind of important to do it. Again, can't say enough good things about Corey Anderson versus Ryan Bader. Go back to... Um, the Nemkov fight where he gets dropped in the first round. He's supposed to roll under the hook, and he just comes straight up. He just moves his head right into the lane. You can also see Anglitschkis measure him a little bit. To see that kind of a tendency, which he goes back to with his long-range uppercut, I think either even later in the round or the next round, um, I don't mind that he was going for the uppercut. The uppercut can be obviously very phenomenal, and you can see Anglitschkis kind of hunched over. Anyway, just to go back to what we said on regular MK, uh, Corey Anderson, if you come up in that lane where you you go to the body and then you just come right back where you were rather than rolling under where the hook's going to be, dude, you're going to get eaten alive. You're going to get eaten alive fighting like that. And Corey Anderson can wrestle. He's got great cardio. Um, you know, that's a – I think Nemkov overall 
is more of a dynamic force. I mean, he can beat you by submission. He can beat you by wrestling. He can beat you striking. Right in that sense, Corey Anderson's a little bit more sort of boxer, ground and pound type. Uh, Nemkov's got a little bit more, you know, in the tank than that. But um, the way they might individually match up is going to be interesting. Okay. Uh, Brent Primus taking on Benson Henderson. He wins 29-28 and then two 30-27s. I guess that I think it's like the second round maybe um, where you could score it for Henderson even though Primus might have had some strong positions and for a time even the back, um, but not enough to really do a whole lot with it. But that's really the story here. It was like Even in the third round, Benson was. He landed a nice shot, for example, a big punch, I should say. Uh, on premise and uh, it took him off of his feet, but he was able to get back up and then find the back and then, you know, flatten him out a couple times from there. Really, the story was that premise was able to get the takedown when he needed it to one way or the other, sometimes jumping for guillotine and then rolling him over that happened uh, or even just whatever uh, going for a takedown and then getting behind him when you can't get it and then finding a way to find the back. Really, it was Brent premises, better mat grappling, I would say, uh, and then the fact that he was the initiator here that saved him, that was the big difference between them. On the feet, Henderson might have been the better striker. You have Primus kind of holding his hands open and then a little, almost like a little wide at the same time, which meant that straighter punches uh, or quicker punches that Henderson would throw sometimes would have an effect, although Primus never, you know, was never hugely in range a, a lot. But that big difference was the asymmetry. Dude, I mean, just think about all the places where you have an advantage positionally over your opponent it's hard to think of one back mount that's more asymmetrical than that it's such an advantageous position and yes even with that especially if you're going to the body triangle which you saw him do over and over again largely as a condition of holding position it becomes less dynamic because it turns out from the back you need your legs to help you do some of the wrestling to isolate the limbs uh for any kind of submission finish a high percentage other i should i should say um, if you want to, to to do that, so you know when you be when you go to the body triangle, it locks you into position where it makes that position while advantageous and asymmetrical, not quite as it may have been before. Nevertheless, if you can consistently find it on an opponent in mixed martial arts, um, you should have a lot of advantages, and you should you should use that. You should not lose a fight if you can find your way to the back, and I think all three rounds, if memory serves. You know, that is, uh, that's such a game-changing skill. Um, and I know that there is still some debate about like, well, if he takes the back and he doesn't do anything with it, I have to tell you, I mean, maybe these are, I, I, certainly these are not in keeping with the way that judging is going. I understand the inclination to want to treat the back as, okay, you got there. The reward for the back is that you've now found your way to the back. If you don't really do anything with it, um, we, how do we score this position? We shouldn't really score all that effectively. I tend to think if you have the back, you know, obviously the net, the rest of the round, but automatically for me, that is winning the round, even if you did nothing with it. When I say nothing, I mean, like, if I, I suppose if I literally just held on and didn't try anything, maybe I would feel more neutral about it because you're not employing li literally any offense at that point. But that position is almost offense. Um so for me, you don't have to do a whole lot once you get there to win a round. Uh, I, I, again, this may not be in keeping with what the judging is or is taught, but that's my personal belief um, that I, have, I take that position to be 
you know, again, especially when you could you have a third round in and you're going all the way back to it again, you know, that is a, that's such a weakness in the plumbing, so to speak, that, you know, um, just finding that position really counts a lot for me. And then Henry Corrales defeating Vladislav Parub, Parubchenko, uh, 30-27 across the board. Parubchenko's an interesting guy. He's actually teammates with Yaroslav Amosov, who is that organization's welterweight champion. And by the way, a very good fighter. Wrestle heavy, trains out of American Top Team now, I think for some of his camps. Uh, still out of Kiev, Ukraine. But Parubchenko is his teammate and was like 16-1, 16-2 or something heading into this contest. He had a long layoff. He came back at, on the prelims for a previous Bellator card, maybe even that Leota Bader card, something like that. And uh, and didn't look great, didn't look great. But you're like, well, maybe it was the layoff or something. This guy's a black belt in judo, and he has a you know combat sambo background, and was beating the shit out of people on the regional scene, including through Japan. And then he didn't look great in his Bellator debut, and then comes back in this contest, and he doesn't look bad by any stretch. He's certainly not a bad fighter, but you just wonder like what the what is the ace in the hole here? He looked a little bit outsized to me. He didn't have nearly the hand speed or the quickness of Corrales. Corrales had good defensive wrestling and good defensive grappling for the most part in this contest, I thought, right? And Padubchenko, who needed the takedown, who needed to get on top, who needed to find that outlet, when that wasn't really available, he just didn't really have a lot else to offer. He got hit with that left hook in the third that nearly... I won't say put his lights out, but you know, clearly he felt it. And you know, I, I think that there's a lot of these guys coming out of Eastern Europe from all different places, which is great. Um, but and he had a great record, but it's also just sort of goes to show it's it's true, it's true now that there are a lot of international promotions that should be celebrated for how good they are in terms of talent coming out of there. You can be reasonably certain, reasonably certain that they'll be ready for the big show when they get the call up. Places like Cage Warriors, uh, ACB used to be this way. I think it's still, it was ACA now, whatever it's called. Um, certainly one and, and places like that, but one is already kind of you know, one of the bigger shows on, on the earth. You know what I'm talking about, these sort of like fight pass shows, LFA would be another one here regionally, um, that if they don't go explicitly through one of those feeder leagues, I don't want you to dismiss them because Padovchenko did have some you know good experience but if they don't have experience from one of those shows, especially coming off of a long layoff, all I would say is not to discount them, but you would definitely want to double check your homework. Like sometimes I'll see guys coming out of Cage Warriors and I'll see that they won in their UFC debut and maybe I missed it, maybe whatever. But I can sort of be like, oh, he went from Cage Warriors to UFC and he won second round TKO. Right, that makes a lot of sense. He's probably the genuine article winner losing his next fight. Some of these other places, he was on a lot of shows, but it doesn't look to me like he's really ready for, despite having a vast amount of experience, um, Parubchenko for this level. So there is some retooling that is is in order. Uh, very quickly, since we have just about a minute or two left here, what can we say about the um, the other parts of that UFC card? As I as I go back here, um, very quickly. I would say that the the most interesting result was the uh, Andrew Sanchez one, where you just, he has this incredible comeback uh, quite late. The, in fact, the method was TKO two thirty five, so over two thirty five, so over halfway through the third round. Um, great, great response by him after what was a really, really tough uh, beginning and middle, frankly, to that fight. Um, so great work by him. 
And then uh, Batgirl, Batgirl, I can never pronounce his name correctly. The TKO in the first, that was a mean TKO. He was all over him like white on effing rice. You could not believe how, uh, just would never, no, no air to breathe is the, is the sort of the method of the madness there. And uh, obviously Danny Roberts, Luana, oh, and by the way, Lupita, Lupita, Lupi Godinez losing 29-28. Remember, she was the one who's trying to make the turnaround in seven days. She was kind of thoroughly out of her element here. Um, the the move, I think it was a move up in weight class, if memory serves. Uh, let me double check that. I have to see. But uh, flyweight debut, yeah. She was too big and too skilled. That was, I, I, I don't discount the spirit of the attempt. I appreciate the attempt. But that was a clear overreach. It didn't really work out. Uh, your performance winners, by the way, for UFC, Jim Miller, Nate Landwehr, Bruno Silva, and Dana Batgarel. All right. Did you like this format a little bit better? Do you want me to see do a little bit of column A, column B? What did you think? Leave a comment. What was your favorite fighter of the weekend? By the way, oh, let me do this before we go. Shouts to my guy, Justin Berry. Justin Berry made his debut yesterday at uh, Cage Warriors. I don't know the number. Please forgive me. But it was the one on the 17th of October, 2021. Justin Berry, keep an eye on this name. He was supposed to make his Bellator debut and then cut weight. And the commission axed his fight at the last minute because he had like an elevated heart rate. He was fine. I, I was uh, messaging with him on um, uh, Instagram. He was fine. Like I knew the guy was in his corner uh, and they all told me he was fine, but whatever, the California commission didn't allow it. This time he cuts weight, he makes it, and he wins uh, with an inside crescent kick KO, one shot, one kill in just one of the most spectacular highlight reel finishes you'll ever see. Why do I bring up Justin Berry? I trained with Justin years ago. And, um, dude, he was he was maybe the hardest guy to partner up with in the gym of anyone. I I could not pass his guard. <laughs> I could not pass. Gee, no, didn't matter. Could not pass his guard. And he just got so much better than all of us, so much quicker. And then he moved. Um, and then I stopped training not too long after he moved. And uh, then I saw he had hooked up with a guy who I also used to train with. Shouts to Sunni Imhotep. Both of them are training together now out in the West Coast. And they got back together. And uh, anyway, so Justin was supposed to make his pro debut for Bellator. Couldn't. So he made it yesterday. And one with inside Crescent Kick KO. It's on my Instagram stories if you want to see it right now. Dude, keep an eye on that guy. He was so – he was a great training partner because he was so talented. But um, if his striking is anything like his jiu-jitsu, people are going to have a big problem with him. Athletic. He trains like he sucks, but he fights like he is fucking awesome. You know what I mean? Like he's the first guy in the gym, last one out. And if he keeps going, he will be a problem. I guarantee it, dude. I, that guy was good. Really good. So congratulations, Justin. Everything you got, you deserved. Okay. Thumbs up on the video. Hit subscribe. Thank you guys so much for watching. This is MK Extra Credit. Let me know what you liked. Let me know what you didn't. Leave a uh, comment. Subscribe. Like the whole nine yards. Until next time, enjoy the fights.